Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Get a short scripture reading this morning because we are still introducing this, this great chapter which we'll spend some time in. It's great because it's the Word of God, but it's also great because it's very applicable, practically helpful in daily life, especially for a believer, a genuine believer who wants to overcome sin, and the Apostle Paul teaches us how to do that. And, and Paul launched us into this section the last time as he began this, this new series of explanations. He, he doesn't leave his theme of assurance, which began back in chapter 5, but he's adding additional support to it. Um, this time, adding additional support for security, for assurance, by speaking about grace and sin, and then how we rest in one, how we rest in grace, and how we battle the other, how we battle sin. And chapter 6 began with a question, which shows that it's actually a follow-up from from chapter 5. Look, if you would, at verse 1 of chapter 6. It begins with this question. Paul says, what shall we say then? And your immediate question to that is, say about what, Paul? And Paul's answer would be, say about the teaching that I just gave about grace. And your question is, what was that teaching? Well, look at verse 20 and 21 of chapter 5, which is actually the on-ramp to, to these verses. The law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the question he asks then is, so shall we go on sinning that this grace may, may increase? To which he answers in resolute firmness and uh, a touch of indignation, may it never be. Uh, it's a very, very strong way to, to make that statement. And then Paul begins a new commentary on the topic and he explains it. And he explains it by beginning with, how shall we who died to sin, which is the theme of the first part of chapter 6, dying to sin, raising to new life, putting off sin, living in this new life. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And with that explanation, he launches, and that will continue all the way down through verse, verse 14. So this is a new section in the book of Romans, but it's still under the old topic of, uh, of assurance. And chapter 6 teaches us about the grace of God that conquers the power of sin. And that, and that should assure us, shouldn't it? Grace that is greater than all of our sin. I need that kind of, of, of grace. But it's a grace that's so one-sidedly shocking that you find yourself, when, when you truly think about it, when you, when you truly understand the grace of God, not some human form of grace that mingles in a little bit of our merit, but this, this wave of, of divine grace, sovereign grace that comes to us from the Lord just because He's God and He dispenses it. When, when you grasp that, you find yourself asking the question, is this possible? I mean, could, could it be true that there is this kind of grace? 
Can, can there truly be a salvation so, so completely free, a, a flooding grace that doesn't just barely cover my sins, it engulfs them like an ocean, a, a powerful grace that invades our lives without any merit from, from us, a reigning grace that, that dethrones sin and now rules over us like a, like a kind king, an eternal grace, a grace that that begins life in us and that continues and ushers all the way through the, into, into eternal. Um, and it's grace is ours, Paul says. All of us who have believed upon Jesus Christ by faith alone. And, and it almost sounds too good to be true, which is why Paul starts chapter 6 the way that he does. Shall we continue in sin that, that grace may abound, that this grace may, may abound? And, and that's the question some people ask. You may ask in your own heart because grace is so astounding. I mean, if it is this way, if it's all the Lord, then does that mean that sinning doesn't matter? That my sin doesn't matter? And so he asks the question in verse 1 because our natural inclination to grace is to find it shocking or to be tempted to make it cheap. And so then he explains how a believer operates in this grace while still dealing with indwelling sin. Because you know, as a believer, you still have indwelling sin. And so you're having God in one sense say, this is what my grace is like, this is how it comes to you, it has nothing to do with you. And in the other sense, you have sin resident in your heart, and you're saying, how do these two things go, go together? And so Paul gives this correcting answer about cheap grace... And then he gives instruction on how to deal with sin now that you're saved by, by, by this grace. And that's what he'll tell us in, in chapter 6. We're dead to sin, and yet we're alive to God. Sin is no longer our, our master. And we said this section is tragically applicable to, to the modern church because it has preached such a weak gospel. And when you, when you preach a gospel that doesn't transform anyone, then you must develop the, the, these new doctrines that, that kind of create two different kinds of, of, of believers. Believers that have been genuinely transformed and then believers that are called carnal Christians or, or some kind of professors. You, you have to do that in order to accommodate people who are not changed by this impotent gospel, which is no gospel at all that, that, the, that the church is, is, is preaching. I mean, when your gospel is more therapeutic than transforming, it's more therapeutic than altering, then, then there's really only two things that you can do. One is you have to change the definition of a Christian. And you say, well, there are committed followers who, who are truly transformed, and then there are uncommitted believers who are not. They're, they're, they're not transformed. Or there are saved people who don't grow in sanctification. And then there are disciples who do, or there are people who are really serious, who look like their Savior. And then there are carnal Christians who look very much like the world, but they're still saved. That's what the modern church does. So you separate Christianity in these two categories. You make a decision, and then you become serious, and you become a disciple later. And, and under that peop, uh, system, people who actually live like Christians are, are viewed as some higher level of, uh, of followers. That's one thing you do. The other thing that, that you can do is you try to add to the gospel because you, you know that, that there's still sin resident and sin's bad and people lack the power in, in, 
in, in their lives. And so you mix in a little law with the grace to provide like a speed bump to, to slow down this rampant power of the flesh that still resides in the heart. And, and sadly, when the church does that, we, we remove the very power that, that, that can actually change or actually restrain the flesh. I mean, adding anything to the gospel, even with good intentions, takes all of its power uh, away. It renders it powerless. And so the Apostle Paul starts this chapter with these two answers. He provides two answers to the common question about grace. First, he says, saving grace never leads to sin's encouragement. And the second, he says, saving grace always leads to sin's end because we've died to sin. So he says in verses 1 and, and 2, which is where we ended last time in, in, in verse 2. And then Paul will spend verses 3 through, through 10 and all the way through 14 explaining and fleshing that out. So look if you would at verse 2. He says, may it never be. And this is the answer to his question. Shall we continue in sin? Shall we believe this is cheap grace? May it never be. How shall we, who died to sin, still live in it? So whatever dying to sin mean, means here, it's something that happened to you in the gospel as a believer. As I pointed out last time, this is a statement. Paul is not saying, die to sin. I'm commanding you, die to sin. He, he says, how shall we who died to sin? It's a statement of a fact. If you're a believer, you have died to sin. And that happened through grace, because that's the whole context that brings this up. And Paul says, sin once reigned over us, and we were all in bondage to sin before Christ. But now he says, how shall we, who died to it, died to sin in Christ, and we died to its power, where it's broken off in the life of a believer, how shall we continue in that? Well, and, and that happens whenever the, the grace of Christ floods you. But then that, that brings up another question, doesn't it? At least it does in my mind. I mean, I know sin is still resident in me and around me, and it comes out of my heart. It's in there. So what does Paul mean here? Paul, what do you mean? I, I died to sin. I, I know that. So you, you, you tell me that's a statement of a fact, but then what do I do with the sin that, that, that's, that, that's in me? And it also, it also begs the question, if this death to sin is so important, then, then how do I know whether this has happened to me? I mean, if everything hinges on whether I died to sin through Jesus Christ, then, then what's the evidence that this has actually taken place? I mean, if there are people, you're, you're telling me, Pastor, that there are people who, you know, who have believed a, a, an impotent gospel, a false gospel, and they think they're believers, but they're not. I mean, what's the evidence of, between one, one or the other. I mean, are there marks that can be seen in my life that, that can produce assurance? Because that's our topic, assurance. Maybe you were listening last time and you had that question. I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I surely don't want to be deceived myself. But how do I know whether I have died to sin, been transformed? I mean, does the Bible give any evidence that this has happened to someone? And indeed, it does. And that's what I'm going to show you this morning. So I want you to turn from Romans over to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. The Puritan Richard Sibbs said, We dare not add to grace or require things that the Lord never did, like the Pharisees. 
Matthew 23, 4, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to, to move a finger. We don't want to be that way. I mean, Sib said, we, we need to take heed, therefore, because of that, that verse. He said, let us be careful not to pitch matters too high, making things necessary evidences of grace, which do not equal the experience of many a good Christian, and laying salvation and damnation upon things that are not fit to bear so great a weight. In this way, men are needlessly cast down and may not soon be raised again but by themselves or others. He said the ambassadors of so gentle a Savior should not be overbearing, setting up themselves in the hearts of, of people where Christ alone should sit in His own temple. So we, we don't want to do that in a message like this. But God also inspired Peter to write in 2 Peter 1.10 to be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, and he just gave a, a list of evidences, a list of qualities, he says you will, you will never fall. You'll have assurance, is what, what Peter is, is saying. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I don't want to lay you know, some, some burden on your genuine faith that, that is real, no matter how weak it, it is. But I want to give you some evidences that, 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 can, that can assure you. But every time you're preaching to, to, a, to a crowd of people, a mixed multitude, there are people here this morning that struggle with assurance, that, that have faith, and, and, and it's weak, and you want to take very very diligent care with that, and then there are others who are hypocrites, who, who are blind to their sin, and they need to be dislodged, and, and so that's a balance that Scripture brings, that's what you do, you go to Scripture, and you, you read what it says, because you can be very moral, and you can go to hell. In fact, Jesus implies in Luke 12 that hell is full of very moral and religious people, maybe even more so than immoral ones. And yet the Bible gives clear evidence for a person who's been given new life, which arises from these new affections that happens in, comes in the heart. So the doing is present, the desiring is also there. Like in Matthew 7, 21, it's he who does the will of my Father, and yet that doing comes from desiring. So there's an evident change whenever you come to Jesus Christ. But where do we look for that change? I mean, we, we kind of know that instinctively. If you come to Jesus, you ought to be different. But in what ways? I mean, what are the changes? Well, the Bible gives several of them here in First John. There are actually seven in this, in this book. You could call them seven evidences of genuine salvation or seven assurance-granting marks. And they come from the disciple that Jesus loved, who penned a significant portion of the, of the New Testament. And we love John as a, as a reader because he clearly tells us why he, he, he's writing. Look at what John says in John chapter 20, 31. This is his gospel, the gospel of John. He says he writes it to, to unbelievers or, or, or so people will have faith in Christ. John 20, 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. I'm writing the Gospel of John so that you might believe who Jesus is. So if you're an unbeliever or you have somebody that's unsure, then, then tell them to read the Gospel of John. 
It's a great book. That's why we do that. But he tells us, the same writer tells us in 1 John, this letter that we're in right now, 5, 12 through 13, that he writes this letter to believers to secure a solid footing. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, that you may have assurance that you have eternal life, and that may, you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You see the difference? He says he's written this letter to those who believe that, that we may have a strong assurance, that you might have solid ground, that, and that by that, that solid ground it may propel you forward in, in walking worthy for, for the Lord. You may continue in that belief. So that's the purpose of, of this letter and its content gives us these, these, these evidences. There are seven of them. And the first one, it, he begins with, it's, it's foundational. And it's having genuine fellowship with God. The first evidence that he gives here of, of salvation is that you have genuine fellowship with God. Look, if you would, at verse 3. Paul's introducing his letter here, telling us why, what his goal is in writing it. He says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And look at verse 7 of 1 John chapter 1. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with, with one another... And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So John is writing so that we may have fellowship with Him, with other believers, with the Father, and, and with the Son, which is an evidence that, that you possess eternal life. So prior to salvation, you had no fellowship with God. You didn't even desire fellowship with, with God. Your heart was an enmity with God. You hated the light. You didn't want to come to the light. But now, as a believer, because of Christ, we're reconciled to Him, and now we experience communion with God. We have fellowship with God. We're, we're drawn into this fellowship with, with God. You draw near to Him. You no longer fear Him. You rejoice in, in His presence. And John is not talking about something just experiential here, like like feeling close to God. You can find people that are deceived that will say, yeah, I feel really close to God. They'll have emotional, spiritual experiences. What John means here is you're, you're one in heart and one in mind with the Lord. Remember the Pharisees in Luke 15 accused Jesus of fellowshipping with sinners? That he was fellowshipping, he was eating with these publicans and, and, and sinners they were saying that Jesus was too close to them. He, he had common fellowship with them. He was acting like, like he was friends with them. He was acting close to them, like, like they had something in common. And fellowship like John, talk, John is talking about here is, is not social. It's a participation. It's not like going to a church social and, fellow, and fellowshipping. It's like being a partaker or a partner of eternal life only granted in, in Jesus. And so we have this fellowship now with, with the Father. I always remember this word fellowship by the idea of fellows shipping. I'm on the same boat carrying the same cargo in harmony with, with the captain. And you must be a partaker of, of eternal life like John. And if you are, then you have fellowship with, with God. You didn't before, but, but now you do. And that, that's foundational, which is why he starts here. 
It means that you will be near to the Lord and others. And notice he says in verse verse 7, that fellowship comes through the work of Christ. The end of verse 7. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from, from all sin. There are desires and affections that are associated with it. The end of verse 4. These things I write that, that, that our joy be made complete. And so based on that, some questions that you might ask yourself is have I ever experienced communion with God? And do I now? When the word is preached and I'm around other believers, does it, does it make me joyful? I mean, do I have a love for God that draws me in, into His presence? I mean, have I ever experienced the sweet communion of prayer and the exhilarating joy of, of talking to the living God? I mean, have I experienced a change in relationship with, with God? At one point, I'm alienated and now I'm drawn into His fellowship. I was once fearful and unsure about approaching Him, and now I have, a, have this sense of grace that draws me near. I have confidence to draw near to the, the throne of grace. And yet, you, you, that's not all there is, and so John goes, uh, goes a little further. He gives this second evidence. You have a sensitivity to sin. If you've passed from death unto life, you have a sensitivity to sin. Look, if you would, at verse 5 immediately goes here. He says, this is the message which we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at, at all. So if you're going to have fellowship with God, you have fellowship with the light and, and not, not the darkness. So light and darkness, John says, do not coexist. I mean, you can't claim to have fellowship with God and live in sin. It's about as simple as I could say what John John means here, which is darkness. And then he provides three false claims uh, uh, people make about this this duplicitous discrepancy, the the carnal Christian, if you will. He says they falsely claim to be Christians. Verse 6, he says, if we say we have fellowship, there's that word, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we we live our lives in darkness, we, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. So we falsely claim that we're Christians. We can also falsely claim that we have no sin. Verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is, is not in us. And then they can even falsely claim that they've never sinned. In verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and, and his word is not in us. And, and the three of those go a little bit like this. Oh, yeah, I prayed whenever I was a child, I'm going to heaven. But then they continue to live in sin. They, they live a life that's untransformed by the gospel. Or I'm a pretty good person, but they're really not. And the last one, I mean, I, I've, I've always known God. I've kept the golden rule my whole life. When, when they haven't. And a person who has saving faith doesn't do that. They're sensitive towards sin. They're honest about their, their sin. That's possible to be self-deceived and, and, and be saved, but, but at some point God's going to wake you up out of the sleep, hopefully sooner or, or, or later. So how do believers respond to sin? That's, that's what he's dealing with here. If you're, if you're saying 
eternal life is fellowship with God, and yet I'm aware of this darkness, this sin that's in me and around me. How do I deal with those two things? How do I reconcile those, those two things? Well, John gives the answer in verse 9. Look at verse 9. You know this verse. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To confess your sin means to say the same thing about your sin that, that God does, including what it is, that it's sin. I mean, verse 9 is not just the idea of when you do something bad, you say, God, forgive me. And if you do that, then he'll, then he'll wash it away. And if you don't do that, he won't. I mean, what he's saying here is a believer, a genuine believer, doesn't live in darkness, and whenever they fall into the darkness, they acknowledge that. As believers, we're confessing people. We live in a constant state of acknowledging our sin. We, we continually confess. We're continually sensitive to, to sin. We're aware of it. In fact, Christians are the only people that are truly honest about their sin. I mean, nowhere in the Scripture does it claim that a Christian is going to be without sin on the earth. It says the opposite. It says that believers will sin while they're on the earth. They just acknowledge it, and they confess it to God, and they hate it, and they flee from it. They're sensitive to sin, and that's an evidence that you've been saved. You, you say, Lord, I've sinned. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Think of even the example that Jesus gives between the Pharisee and the publican in the temple. The Pharisee says, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. And that guy won't even look up. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. That's why it's an evidence of new life, and that comes from fear of God. Unbelievers don't fear God. What makes you sensitive to sin? Well, you, you may say because it brings pain in my life. Yeah, that's possible. But, but sensitivity to sin, like, like John's talking about here, is because you know God. You know He's light. And because you know He's light, you don't want anything to do with the, with the darkness. Charles Spurgeon said, The absence of holy fear is a damning mark in the souls of unholy professors. That religion which has no awe in it, which never makes us tremble before the Most High, is not the religion of genuine faith. For there is a fear which even perfect love doesn't cast out, but it rather increases and deepens that holy fear which is the very essence of true, true piety. So ask yourself the question, are you aware of a spiritual battle raging within you? You say, yeah, I am. Man, I'm battling sin. I'm battling sin all the time. That's good. <laughs> That's an evidence that you're a believer. Because an unbeliever doesn't care about their sin. Do you realize that you have true communion with God? Do you have a holy life? And that you can't walk in darkness and claim to have fellowship with Him? Are you willing to confess and forsake any sin in your life as you become aware of it? Do you do that regularly? These are things that believers do. And if so, that evidence should assure you, assure you that you have fellowship with, with God. But, but there's more. He says there's also a, a desire to obey God's Word. It's the third evidence that John gives. 
Look, if you would, at, at 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. He says, By this we know that we have come to know Him. Couldn't be plainer than that, could it? By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. And you say, okay, now that got a little muddy. What does it mean, keep His commandments? Well, keep going. The one who says, I have come to know Him, and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word... Oh, okay, now it's a little clearer. Whoever keeps His word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected, or has truly been completed. By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself also to walk in the same manner in, in which, he, which he walked. That's very plain. If you want to know whether you're a true Christian or not, ask yourself whether you have a pattern of obeying the Scriptures. Or do you have a pattern of manipulating the Scriptures? You come to the Scriptures and you don't really like what the Scriptures say, or you take part of the Scriptures and, and, you, and you say, it says this here, yeah, but... But that's that there are many interpretations. I mean, if you find those 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 natural parlays in the heart, when the word of God comes straight at you and says, This is who you are, this is how you should live, this is what you should do, and you find yourself doing this, that that's not what a believer does. What a believer does and says, hit me right here. I need it. I want it. And I want to obey it. A desire that's there. Will you do that all the time? No. But there's something in you that longs to do that. You have a desire to obey, and then, and then you, you obey. Verse 4, anyone who says, I have come to know him and does not keep the Scriptures, does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Jonathan Edwards looked at this one, and he said, as the principal evidence of life is motion, so whatever is alive moves, so the principal evidence of saving grace is holy practice. What comes out of a life is, is growth. What comes out of a life is obedience. So whenever holiness of life does not accompany a confession, it must be understood that the, the individual is either not a Christian or there's something fundamentally wrong that God's going to correct. A person who's truly saved will not only have a desire to obey God, he will. He'll grow in holiness. And he'll overcome sin progressively. And that will grow in your life. And one day the very presence of sin will, will be removed, like our dear brother Dr. Zimmick. No sin in that brother's life right now. It may not be all at once, but there'll be a pursuit. So ask. Do you genuinely desire to obey the Word of God, have love for Christ? Do you see that desire producing an overall pattern of obedience? If you do, you possess a really important evidence indicating the, the existence of, uh, uh, of saving faith. But he gives a fourth one. This one is opposition to the world. Look at verse 15. Of chapter 2. You know this verse as well. Verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You've heard that verse so many times that it almost just, you just, you kind of drown it out. Think about it in the context of John here and how it relates to, to evidence of being transformed by grace. I mean, how do you relate to the world around you? Do you embrace it or, or are you repelled by it? What I described in, the, in my prayer time, this sense of these are not my people. And I long for them to, to come into the people of God. I mean, do not love the world or the, or, or, or the things of it. Are you attracted to the world? Yeah, I am. I'm attracted sometimes to the, to the things of the, uh, of the world. Do you feel at home there? Do you want to remain there? I mean, when I say that, does that does there's something in you to go, oh, yeah, and I don't want to. Well, that's good. But, but if you don't feel that at all, then that's a problem. I mean, the system that's, that's operating out here, in, in, outside of the garden, is what the Bible calls the world, uh, the Greek term cosmos. It's an arranged system. It has its own, it has its own loves, its own system of thinking. Its own master. Its world system is materialistic. You must have this. You have to have this. It's, it's immoral. There are no boundaries, or surely God doesn't define the boundaries. Uh, it's rebellious. No one should tell me how to live. I'm going to live however I want to live. It's self-oriented. I am the most important person on the planet. And it loves pleasure. It defines those boundaries by whatever feels good. That, that's what's, that's the, the, the engine of, uh, of the world. And when you become a Christian, such things repel you. They don't attract you. You may stumble into them. You may have a, you may have a draw there. It's very true sometimes. You may be lured into worldly things, but it isn't what you love. It's what you hate. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul felt in Romans seven nineteen when he says, For the good that I want... I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Notice the desire. What I want, what I do not want. When that happens, then I find this, the, the, the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants, the one who desires to, 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 to do good. And then he ends with, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? I mean, Paul was aware of the world. And sometimes he, he was drawn into it, but... But he hated it. And as frustrating as this may be for us, it's not what we love. It's what we hate. So ask yourself, how do you relate to the world? Are you more at home there than in here, like now? Do you reject the false religions, human ideologies, godless living, vain pursuits? Do you want to be like the world, look like the world? Do you love God, His truth, His kingdom, and all that He stands for? Are you primarily materialistic? I must have this. Do you live your life looking for the next thing that you must have? Are you immoral? You decide where the boundaries are. I mean, I'm not like those really, really bad people, but, but I'll be like this. I'm, as long as I don't go this far, it's okay. Rebellious? Nobody's going to tell me how to live, even God? Self-oriented? Do you love pleasure? 
New life in Christ plants within us a love for God and a hate for the things that, that, that He hates. And while you may fall to sin, there will be a decreasing pattern of it in your life. That, that's the fifth evidence. Look at 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. You, you won't be perfect, but you will walk in a decided direction and grow as you do. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. I pay very close attention to the words because this is a passage that sometimes causes people to trip up. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And he who abides in sins, no one who sins has seen him or or knows him. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous, and the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the, the works of the, of the devil. And the key word there is practice, habitual practice. And you may stumble over verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. And no one who sins has seen him or knows him. And you go, well, I've sinned. Yeah, you have. But take that one verse in the context of the rest of it. He's talking about habitual practice and practicing of righteousness. So you may not have every area of your life in order. You may even be fighting besetting sin. But as a believer, you'll have a pattern of righteousness and a decreasing pattern of, of, of sin. As you stand back and you look in your life, you'll, 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 you'll see growth. And you say, ah, oh. so if I look at this last week, I don't see a lot of growth. I don't see, in fact, I see sin in my life. Well, okay, go back uh, a, a month. Do you see a decreasing pattern of sin there? Oh, no, I still see sin. Okay, go back a year. Do, do you see in this period of time a victory over sin, a decreasing pattern of, of, of sin and, and, a, and a growth in righteousness? I mean, you keep going back, and, and if it comes to a point where you go back so far and you don't see any pattern of decrease in sin. Now, now there's a problem there. But it's like the stock market. I mean, there may be crashes, but it goes up over time. At least that's what they tell me. Probably to steal my money. I don't know. But you can crash as a believer horrifically. And I could give you many names in Scripture. David, Peter, massive crashes. But a righteous man rises again. Unbroken patterns of sin are a characteristic of the unregenerate, which is what... John is saying here, it's habitual practice of either righteousness or sin. Is, it's a general pattern of your life. What's the general pattern of your life as you look at your life? I mean, do you have to excuse your life? Do you have to explain away the way you live to try to figure out how to attach yourself to Christ and your profession? Or does the way you live actually give a foundation, an evidence to the profession that, that you're making? The good news is, if it doesn't, if there's more sin there, then you don't have to remain 
Even if the pattern is bad, God can deliver you. But no matter what a person claims about being Christian, if they continue in sin, it's only a claim. And you'll still battle unredeemed flesh. But the more you pursue Christ, the less you'll sin. So here's the diagnostics for this one. Do you see victory over sin in your life? Different periods of life, different phases of life bring different challenges. But do you see righteous motives? Do you see righteous desires, righteous words, righteous deeds? As you look at your life, what flows from your heart? And then what flows from your hands, your feet? Is it a good pattern or is it a bad one? Here's the sixth. The sixth evidence is a a love for the church. There's, There's only this one and one more. Look, if you would, at verse 10. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. So this is still reaching back towards this practice, but he adds something at the end which, which brings him into a new topic. He says, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor, does the, nor the one who does not love his brother or love the brethren. So now that's a new topic. He's talking about practicing righteousness, and now he talks about loving brothers. Hmm. He says, no one, nor does the one who does not love his, his, his brother, which is one another in the very next, in the very next verse. And then he starts talking about, about the church. When I came to Christ... I left all of my friends, uh, or better, they, they left me. Um, I had zero people that I was close to that, that were believers. And my life sadly evidenced that. I had some family members that were Christians, but no deep abiding relationships with, with Christians at all. And what I found in the church was a spiritual family. They became my, my, my world. I, I didn't want to be apart from them. I... I wanted to gather with them whenever they gathered. I wanted to pray whenever they prayed, even though I didn't know how to do that. I wanted to eat with them. I wanted to have fun with them. I wanted to be with them. I loved them instantly, even though we were very, very different in other things. And it was an instant supernatural love that, that, that grows. It's what I mean when I say I want to be here with you, even whenever I'm, a, even whenever I'm apart. And these people not having anything in common from an earthly standpoint, there was, a, there was heavenly commonality. Or to say it simply, when I got saved, I fell in love with the church. And you will love the brethren. You will love the, the church. Do you love the church? I mean, do you want to be here in some capacity, boundless on Thursday night, Sunday school class, care group, when you're not together, do you want to be around other Christians? Or is this kind of something that you do on Sunday, but most of your deep abiding relationships are with people who aren't in church? They're unbelievers. Do you feel more at home around worldlings? That's a problem. Do you give to the church? Do you protect it? Do you fight for it? I mean, I'm not talking about the building, but I'm talking about the people of God and, and part of everything that we... That, that we do. If you have those kinds of affections for the church, then, then you just might be saved. That's exactly what John says here. And he gives us a final one. 
This one's a little different. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. It's a discernment between spiritual truth and error. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard it is coming, and now it is already in the world. I can remember when uh, our church turned 75, our 75th anniversary, uh, the office was digging through some archives for some mementos. We were putting together a a video and some other things to celebrate 75 years of faithfulness at at Timberlake, and someone, as they were digging back, way back through the archives, uh, brought me some minutes from a deacon's meeting from like 1955, 60, somewhere around in there. And in the minutes, it had the duties of a deacon. These minutes said that the duties of a deacon were to sit on Sunday morning, like you are right now, and evaluate the pastor's sermon and to test the spirits to see whether they were good or, or, or bad. And I actually thought somebody was pulling my leg whenever they, they, they gave me this, but they weren't. Needless to say, that's not what this passage means, nor is that the role of, uh, of a deacon. I would just summarize John's point here by saying this. A believer can understand who Christ is and, and what he did. I think this is what John's saying here. From the moment of your salvation, there's one thing that you're clear about. You may not understand election or eschatology or any of the other things, but from the moment of your salvation, you're clear about who Christ is and what He did. In fact, if you're not clear about who Jesus is, that He's the Christ, the Son of God, and what He did, you can't be saved. The person of Christ and the work of Christ is what you believe upon. That... that, that that offer of salvation, if you will, the accomplishment of that salvation through the person and work of Christ is what's offered to us in the gospel. And from the moment of salvation, that's what you're clear about. And John says that's what you must believe, the truth about who Jesus is and what He did with, with clarity. And the Holy Spirit is the one who's made that clear to you. It's what this passage says. This test is not moral. It's not experiential. This is a, experiential, this is a doctrinal test. True believers know truth from from error because the spirit of truth indwells them. And John will go on in chapter 5, verse 1 and say, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. It's the same doctrinal test again. When you believe the right thing about Christ, then then that's an evidence that you're, you're, you're born of God. Because there's all kinds of people running around saying, this is Jesus of the Latter-day Saints. Or this is Jesus of the, the Jehovah's Watch. Or this is Jesus and I'm an evangelical and I empty the gospel of all of its power. And a genuine believer knows that that's not Christ and knows that's not the gospel. So do you know who Christ is? Do you grasp what took place on the cross? 
Does it move you? Can you tell a false gospel when you hear one? I don't mean can you stumble, can you be deceived, but can you tell a false gospel? Something that denies, something that adds to the work of, of Christ. If you can discern the true gospel, then John says it's an evidence that you're, you're a believer. And there are two others outside I'll just briefly mention, throw in as a bonus. You're probably at your capacity, but I'll give you two more that you can look up on your own. One's in 1 Peter 2 and one's in Hebrews 12. I won't go here. But 1 Peter says you, you desire the Word of God. You desire to increase in the knowledge of God. This is like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the, of the Word. And then probably one of the most encouraging ones, at least it's been in my life, is Hebrews 12.5, an evidence that you're transformed by God is the discipline of the Father. And you know, uh, you have, and have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son, every son whom he receives. You can remember growing up, there was a pond in our front yard and there was a creek that fed the pond and along the creek bank were chestnut trees, a bunch of chestnut trees, and I used to hate those trees because... They left chestnut burrs everywhere when you had to mow the grass and you had, couldn't go in barefoot. You'd step in the chestnut burrs and they'd get in your feet. But that wasn't the only reason I hated those chestnut trees. Those trees made wonderful places for my mother to garner nice little switches that she used to use on my bare legs at times in the summer. And I deserved every single one of them. And while I hated it, it was an evidence that my mother loved me because she did not allow me to do wrong and just get away with it. And if you're a believer, there is no condemnation when you sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. All the condemnation for all of your sin as a believer, as grieving as it may be, was placed upon the back of Jesus on the cross. So there is no condemnation but there will be discipline. And that discipline is actually an evidence that your condemnation has been placed on Christ. And sometimes that discipline can be severe. Have you ever been taken to the divine woodshed, as they say? The Lord's switches are uh, keener sometimes than, than your mother's, but you should be thankful for them. And we're told to fight for our souls. And when we fall in sin... There is discipline, and that's an encouragement to us because it's an evidence that we're His. So there they are, seven evidences that you've been transformed and died to sin's dominion, plus, plus two more. And John gives them not for you to doubt your salvation, but to arm you with tools of assurance. And don't just look at one of them, look at all of them together. Stand back and look at your life and say, even weak, frail, even a little smoke, <laughs> they're there. And then say, praise the Lord, fan the flame, make them greater.
If you don't see these evidences in your life, I would, or you're confused, I would just encourage you to, to talk to someone, set up a biblical counseling appointment or, or something else, and then, and then rejoice 